you this morning to uh, take your Bible, make your way, if you would, to the Old Testament, the book of Job, Job chapter number 14, Job chapter number 14. We're going to uh, read a text here this morning that will uh, bring us into the message that I'll also be taking us to a couple of other texts, and so this will be uh, really a topical message, but it will come from the context of Job and what we see in this passage And the title of the message is a question. It is, Where Are the Dead? Where Are the Dead? And uh, Job actually presents this question in the text, and I think it would be good for us to uh, consider it together and um, see what the Scriptures teach us about this issue. Notice with me in Job chapter 14, if you would, verse 1 through verse 14. Notice that Job says this, and I quote this often. You've probably heard me use it quite a bit in... Wednesday night, going through Ecclesiastes as we consider life under the sun. And, uh, but notice that Job says, Man who is born of a woman is, a, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me and do judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? There is not one. Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, Yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Where are the dead? That's the question Job presents us. And there's a context to that question that I'll bring to our attention. But have you ever wondered about the answer to that question? If you're a seasoned Christian or if you've been in church somewhat, a little bit already, you have an idea of what comes after death, right? What comes after the grave? But do you know that many in our world have no clue what the true answer is to that question? What happens after death? What happens beyond the grave? Everyone knows we're going to die, but not everybody knows what happens after death. Do they still live somehow? And if so, where? How are they living? Many religions have their different ideas of what happens to the dead, and I'll share just a few of them. Buddhism believes that there is no heaven or hell. One is either reborn to suffer more, or one reaches nirvana, the end of all suffering. Islam believes in a paradise or heaven a place of eternal delight for those who are devout to Islam. And then they also have a place they would call hell, which is a place of torment. Native Americans, at least some, have believed that one spirit departed this world and entered on into the world that is to come already. 
Hinduism, very similar to Buddhism, Hinduism believes that those who live well and achieve good karma are reincarnated into a better state, while those who live badly accumulate bad karma, which can only be atoned for through suffering. Deism believes no one knows for sure what happens after death, but nature gives hints that existence continues in a different form. The last one I'll mention is Satanism, which is prominent in our American culture. Satanism believes this life is all there is. So if this life is all there is, live it up. That's what Satanism teaches. Just indulge on whatever you want to do, no matter how sinful it is. Basically, they believe they're you die and you cease to exist. Atheism would pretty much fall in that same category. There is really nothing beyond death, right? You see, religion after religion have given, have given their ideas as to what happens after death. But not all of them are correct, nor can all of them be correct. You know why that is? Because truth is absolute. Truth is absolute. There's not your truth and my truth and we're just all true. No, there's only... One truth. One truth. There's only one true reality about heaven, about hell, about what happens beyond the grave, about salvation. They can't all be correct. And so when we think about truth, how can we know the truth about death and what comes after? Is it even possible for us to know such a thing? You see, the only way to know the truth about this, about what we do not know, is to hear it from someone who does know. But here's the problem. Death and what happens after is not something that you can scientifically examine. You can't go into a laboratory and just, we're going to figure out what happens beyond the grave. We're going to figure out what happens after death. You see, the only one who can reveal the truth about life beyond the grave is the one who really dwells outside of space and time and who is over and above over everything. And you get where I'm going with this. The only way we can know the truth about death and what happens after is from the one true God who created all things, who has set in motion by His sovereign will and power everything we know in this life. He is the one true Creator God who dwells outside of time and space and inside of time and space. He transcends it all. God is not bound to any sort of box. He's not limited. He's not confined to anything. And so what we find here is that Job puts forth a question, and this question is in relation to showing the picture of the, how frail life is, the finality of death. He says, a man dies and is laid low, in verse 10, and breathes his last, and where is he? And the one true God has revealed to us through the Scriptures what exactly happens with death and what happens beyond death. And I want to bring our attention to that this morning. Notice with me number one in our notes. I want to lay the foundation that we're all familiar with. I won't try to spend too much time here, but the first thing we must recognize with this issue is the problem of death. The problem of death. I want to point out three things about the problem of death. The first thing is this, is that death, it is a universal reality for all people. It is a universal reality for all people. Now, through the context of this passage before us, Job is speaking to his friends, quote-unquote. I don't know how much of a friendship I'd want to have with these guys, but you read the book of Job and you'll understand what I'm talking about. 
But he's talking about to them about the reality of death. Well, why is death on Job's mind? Job is presently experiencing the greatest trial and affliction of his life. You all know this. And that trial brings his attention to the reality of mortal life, how futile and brief mortal life really is. Job really longs for the Lord to relieve him of his pain so that he can enjoy the few days of life that he does have in this world. But as Job laments the futility of life, he speaks a plain truth to us that applies to all mankind. You notice verse number 1, notice what he says. He says, man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Now, there's a couple of things that stick out to me in that text. You notice that he says man's days are few and not many. He says they're few and not infinite. That points us to the reality that life in this world, life under the sun, our days really are few in number, though we may think we live a very long time. There is a limit to the days of man in this world. And on the timeline of history, and especially eternity, your and I's life is just barely a speck in the broad picture of God's eternal workings. You see, within that limited scope of time, this person gets to live. Job says that his days are full of trouble. None of us have experienced trouble in life, have we? Of course we have. That's what life is full of, right? Various kinds of afflictions and and trials and and temptations and pains and aches and, and, and things we experience. This is the reality of life in a sin-cursed world. So why is life this way? The answer comes down to that one uh, three-letter word, little word, sin. Sin is a, is a small word, but it has such great ramifications that follow it. Sin. Now, whether a man admits or recognizes or not, sin permeates every person, every society, every nation. Sin is woven into the fabric of all things in this world including the creation itself, it's been cursed. Sin, what is sin? Sin is transgression of God's law. That's what the basic definition is from Scripture. Sin is transgression of God's law. And what we find is that sin came into this world as an act of rebellion against the Creator who gave us life and breath, and so sin itself has depraved the very nature of mankind. Sin has affected every aspect of the being of man. It's affected your body, affected your mind, your heart, your emotions, your will. Every aspect of who you are is tainted and affected with sin. And as you look at mankind's life and all that we see in this world, sin is the reason for all the corruption all the evil, all the chaos, all the death, everything that you see in these categories, sin is the root of it all. And we know how this all started with Adam. How that Adam is the first man who sinned against his holy creator. And by his sin, it is transferred unto all humanity. It is woven into who we are. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. 
And so thus Job says in verse 2, he says of man, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. That's the picture of life. Shadow that fades or flees or a flower that fades away. And so it's a universal reality. But notice with me, letter B this morning, that sin, the problem of death, because of sin, not only is it a universal reality, it's an unavoidable reality for all people. In other words, there's not anyone who can escape this problem that we know as death. You can't do it. Now, how many men in this world do all they can to try to keep on living, right? That's man's desire. We don't wish to die today, nor do we wish to die any day. Men seek all sorts of ways to extend life further. Sometimes that's through technological advancement. We're seeing some almost crazy ideas today of how people are going to make themselves immortal through technology and science. Then we see maybe some healthier lifestyles trying to, to, to prolong your life, which that is a good thing. You should steward your life to be healthy and, and do all that, but... Uh, that doesn't fix the death problem, does it? Avoiding certain dangers, probably good not to play chicken with a train on a railroad track, right? That's just some basic wisdom. If you want to live a little longer. Some people have tried that and failed and they shortened their life. You see, the truth is there's nothing in this world that can keep men from dying. One may extend life for a brief time, but even if one could live a thousand years, they'll not escape death. It's an unavoidable reality. Now, we see biblical examples of those who lived longer, longer than really we can understand in the Bible. Go read Genesis chapter 5 later today, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So-and-so lived 500 years. So-and-so lived 800 years. So-and-so lived 600, some, some years. But you know what? At the end of those people's lives, there's three words that follow all of them except one, and he died. He lived so and so years and he died. There's only one who got exempt from that, and that was Enoch, because he was very, uh, he, he's a unique miracle of God, in which God just took him onto heaven. He didn't experience death. So, he, in a sense, he still didn't live forever in the sense of living forever in this world. You think of even the oldest one. The oldest one, Methuselah. How, how old was Methuselah? 969 years. But the Bible says of Methuselah in Genesis 5.27, Thus all the days of Methuselah were, were 969 years, and he died. And he died. I look at Methuselah, I think, well, at what point are you considered old, right? I mean, is it, is it 500? Is it 700? But it really doesn't matter, does it? Because death is unavoidable. And it comes for us all. And sometimes it comes in unexpected ways. I was reading a a few examples of this. Strange and bizarre deaths that happened out of nowhere. A man named Anthony Fernando, he was a 21-year-old man living in Colombo, Sri Lanka. He went fishing one day off the coast of the island and he had no idea he would not make it back alive. A fork-tailed jar- garfish jumped out of the water and cut him on the neck with its tail. He bled to death before he could ever get to the hospital. Typical fishing trip, right? 21 years old. I was watching an a, a interview earlier this week, and it was a testimony of one who was with one of my childhood heroes, Steve Irwin. Anybody remember Steve Irwin? The crocodile hunter, right? 
I was so, so sad when I heard that he died. But you know how he died? He was underwater filming stingrays. And a stingray came up and shoved its bar into his chest. And so they get him back onto the boat and he's bleeding out and they're, they're trying, to, to, trying to keep him going. And, and this man says, Steve Irwin looked at him and said, I'm dying. I'm about to go. And that's exactly what happened. He had no plans to die that day, but that was the day. We, we could look through hundreds of examples of strange and weird things, the way, way people die, expected and unexpected, but the same thing happens to all of us. We all die. It's unavoidable. You can't get around it. You say, well, why is death unavoidable? Because sin is a universal reality to all people, and death comes with sin. That means, de- that means death is unavoidable for all of us, because we're all sinners. We're all bound to the same thing. Regardless of a person's background, culture, ethnicity, religion, life accomplishments, sin and death have claimed all of us. Why is that? Because there's not anybody who has somehow been born into this world and managed to live a life free of sin. In fact, we find by our own nature that that's an impossibility to live a life free of sin. David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what David's saying? I was born with the nature of sin. The nature of sin. So we sin out of our nature because that's what we're wired to do in our nature. It's like a dog, right? You don't have to teach a dog how to bark, do you? How to wag its tail, how to chase a car, how to... Get on your nerves chewing up the carpet or the couch, right? You don't have to teach him to do those things. That's his nature to do that. The nature of man is sinful and therefore ushers forth sin outside in our life. And because of this, we cannot escape death. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. And here's what Job says in verse 5. He says that God has appointed that man die and he can't pass the limits of what God's ordained. Verse 5, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You understand that if God has ordained that my last day be today, today's going to be my last day. It may be 20 years from now, maybe 30, maybe 40, maybe 50. I don't know. But I can't exceed the limit that I have in life. Notice with me letter C this morning that not only is it an unavoidable Reality. It's also an unparalleled reality to all people, an unparalleled. What what I mean by that? I I mean, think about death for a moment. What compares to death in this world? What is like death? What could you actually measure it up against? Death is unique in and of itself and what it is and how it happens. Think about it. Is there anything other than death that is more feared by, by man than death? Why is death so unique? Unparalleled by all other things mankind experiences in life. Because death is the end of mortal life. There's no redos. There's no restarts. It's not like a video game and you run out of lives and then you're going to restart and try again. There's no second lives. If you look at verse 7 through 10 for a moment in Job, look at this. This is where he's kind of contrasting here with the tree and man's death. He says, for, for there is hope for a tree, right? If it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. 
Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But, here's the contrast, but, verse 10, but a man dies and is laid low, he's buried, man breathes his last, and where is he? Man doesn't reshoot up like a tree and have continued life, does it? That's what Job is getting at here. Trees and plants, though they may die, they have seeds that sprout new life again where they were cut down. But what about men? Job says man dies, and where is he? Man's not found. He's not there anymore in this mortal world. Once he dies, he does not sprout up. He doesn't come back to life to live in the same flesh like he once did. And since man does not come back like the tree or the plant that returns with a little bit of water, what happens to him? Well, we know his body's returned to the earth, right? But is that the end of him? Where is he? Where is he? You see, see Job's speaking of the human body that does not rise back up, but stays in the earth. The body returns to the earth just as God said. But is that the end of the person? No. This is what makes death an unparalleled event in this world for humanity. Death is a separation event. Death is an event that separates you, your spirit, from your body. Because we are not just body, we are spirit and body. Really, your body is a lot like the vehicle you drive, right? You drive around in your vehicle and the real you is in there controlling it, making it go where you want it to go, but the, but the car is not really you, right? It's just a vessel. The same applies to your body. It is only a vessel that you inhabit with your spirit, which is the real you. Now, we learn about death from the very beginning when, when life was first given in Genesis 2-7. We read that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature, a living soul, life. So, so God forms the body. There's the body of the dust. But God breathes into the body life. Giving Him life. The breath of life. And what did God tell Adam would happen after he sinned? He said he would die, but what did God say about the death for Adam and all other who die too? He said in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Speaking of his mortal body. So, So while our body dies and returns to the earth, our spirit, which is our true essence, who we are, it lives on. That begs the question, where? Where does our spirit live? Where do we live after we die? After our body returns to the ground? Where are the dead? That brings me to number two this morning. We see the problem of death. It's very plain. But notice with me the place after death. The place after death. And understand that when we consider this, this, this ought to strike us in consideration, not only for ourselves, but for other people. There's only two places after death. 
And you don't go to both of them, you only go to one of them. The first one is this. People who die in their sin depart into hell. People who die in their sin depart into hell. Now, it seems that the teaching of hell is greatly scorned today, isn't it? Wouldn't we all agree? How many sermons do we hear on hell? It's not real frequent, is it? That's something I need to pay attention to. Maybe I need to preach on it more. Why is that? Because the doctrine of hell is about the punishment of sinners. And guess what man doesn't like to hear about? He doesn't like to hear, one, that he's guilty of something. Number two, that he's worthy of punishment for something. We don't naturally like to hear about punishment, especially when it comes to hell. Charles Spurgeon said this in his day. He said, the doctrine of no punishment for any man is popular at this day and threatens to have an even greater sway in the future. I'd say he was right, wouldn't you? Here he's saying this in the 19th century, we're in the 21st century, and, and, and we see that. We see that. Hell is not a popular topic. It's one that is often avoided. But regardless, understand, whether someone likes a truth or not doesn't change the truth. The Bible is full of truth that man naturally hates. But does that change its truth? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Notice with me as we look at this. The place known as hell is as real as you and I sitting in this room. Can you see me? Can I see you? Yes. It is as real as us sitting in this room. Yet... Many today, many today want nothing to do with it. They seek to avoid it at all costs. You see, real people like you and I today who have lived their life in this world have died. Their bodies have been buried in their funerals, by their, at their funerals. All the while, from the moment they died, their spirit, their true essence of being has been in hell. Hell. What exactly is hell? Well, hell is often mocked and portrayed as a joke to the world today, right? We've probably all heard of that famous song by ACDC. They have a song called Highway to Hell, right? Now, I'm no ACDC fan, but ever since I heard of that illustration, I've been trying to mortify that stupid song out of my mind. You know what I'm talking about, right? Something gets in your head. But you think about that. They have a song called Highway to Hell. It's a song basically that mocks about the, the, the reality. Oh, I'm on the highway to hell. Guess what? They're not wrong. They really are on the highway to hell. And so is every other sinner in this world without Christ. They're on the highway to hell. This is the way in which they are going. And, and you look at this, it's often joked about and, and perhaps ignored, possibly to ease their conscience about its reality, but hell is the place of punishment for the wicked, for those who die in their sins. So how do you know that, preacher? Because God has revealed that to us. Remember what I said at the beginning. The only way to know what we don't know is from the one who does know. God. God created hell. God knows all about it. He has revealed it to us in His Word. Notice with me, if you would, to Luke 16. Luke 16. I think it's interesting to note. Hell is 
spoken of and taught in both the Old and New Testaments. And Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. I think that's for the purpose of, hey, pay attention to this. There's a warning here. Luke 16. Look with me at verse 19 down through verse 31 for a moment. Jesus is teaching and he says to his audience, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, To him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What do you see in this passage? You see two men. One was rich and one was a poor beggar. The rich man enjoyed the best of life, lacking nothing in this world that it could give him. The other was suffering greatly, always in need, just a little, to get by. But their earthly status makes no difference when death knocks at the door. Their earthly status has no no bearing on what happens after them. And notice that in verse 22 we read, The poor man died, and also the rich man died. Death comes for us all. And what happened to them? Jesus gives us a glimpse into the reality of life beyond the grave. The poor man went to Abraham's side, or some translations may say bosom, and that term means he was welcomed into the fellowship of other believers already in heaven. Particularly, they reference Abraham because he was the father of the Jewish people. But what about the rich man? The rich man dies, and he was buried. He had a funeral. Somebody buried him. Don't read about that for the poor man, right? But somebody buried the rich man. He dies, and what happens with him? The Bible says in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. Now, the word Hades here refers to 
the netherworld, Hades as place of the dead. That's the Greek definition there. It is sometimes translated as hell or Hades. It means the same thing. Depending on the context, it could refer to just in general the place of the dead or the place of punishment that we read of right here. The Old Testament word sheol is used the same way. General for place of the dead, but also can refer to the place of punishment. The root word for Hades, it's a noun come from a Hebrew phrase that that means Valley of Hinnom. You've probably heard of that. The Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a ravine along the southern slope of Jerusalem. In Old Testament times, it was a place used for offering sacrifices to foreign gods. Eventually, the site was used to burn various things. And when the Jews would discuss punishment in the afterlife, the place we know as hell, they employed the image of the Valley of Hinnom, smoldering with a continual fire and waste dump. And so this is the common illustration known to the Jews that Jesus was talking about. It served as a picture of hell. But what do we learn about this place called hell in this passage? The first thing I want you to learn about this is that it's a real place. Jesus isn't just making something up here. This is a real place. He is God in flesh, revealing true revelation about this place known as hell. Place beyond the grave. Secondly, It's a place where sinners go regardless of what their earthly status was. doesn't matter if you're a poor sinner or a rich sinner, how much you've accomplished as a sinner, it's a place where all sinners go regardless of their earthly status. But notice how it gets a little deeper here. Those who are in hell are conscious and aware of where they are. Notice that this rich man lifted up his eyes. When your eyes are open, what are you? you? You're conscious. Now, when one dies, they are no longer conscious in their mortal body, right? They're no longer there. But after their spirit departs the body, they are conscious again, awakening into a new place in which they can see and hear and talk and feel. This is what you find. This is what God reveals. So this this rich man is in hell and he is conscious, aware of where he is. But notice fourthly with this consciousness in hell, that hell is a place of great pain and suffering and agony. Look at what it says. Immediately being in hell, he was what? He was in torment. He was in torment. Anguish of punishment. And you look at his anguish just in in the little that he asks. In verse 24, he says to to Father Abraham, he says, Please send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in anguish in this Flame. You think about just a drop of water off the tip of a finger and how much relief that would give to somebody in hell. 
Think of even just this small little bottle. They would give 10,000 worlds just to have this, if that was even possible. The agony that they are experiencing in hell. Consider the anguish of those in hell in which they experience. There is a form of physical suffering in life after the death, even though their mortal body is behind them. We see them them experiencing the pain and anguish of the flames of hell. Fire, hot, heat. We see there's a mental aspect to their suffering in which they know about their wicked life and what they did and how they rejected the one true God and Christ Jesus the Lord. There is a spiritual suffering as they bear the weight of God's eternal wrath upon them in this place we call hell. You understand that in hell they realize where they are and they are experiencing the pain that is ongoing. But fifthly, regards to this, notice about hell also that Jesus reveals to us that it is a place that is inescapable. You can't leave it. They want to leave it, but they can't leave it. Anyone in hell would desire to leave hell, but they cannot leave hell. They cannot. You'll notice the reason Lazarus could not bring the rich man some water or the rich man depart to him, is because in verse 26, he says there is a great chasm or a great gulf fixed so that they can't leave and you can't go to them. Sixthly, regarding hell, understand that sinners, they do not cease to exist in hell. You know, one may have great pain in this life and see death as a way out of it, right? Thinking that's the exit. But you understand in hell there is no such thing as the relief of death. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. The flames of hell do not bring someone to a different form of death uh, or what some would say is annihilation, that someone is annihilated and just ceases to be altogether. No, friend. The contrary. Jesus teaches this about hell in Mark 9.48. It's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm being application to the person, the fire never going out. It's eternal and ongoing. Consider this fact today, that Jesus told this account nearly 2,000 years ago, which means the rich man died before he told this account. And here we are in 2023, and the rich man is still there in hell. Still there still enduring the the punishment and agony of what he's worthy of. And seventh, and lastly, understand that hell as we know it today, it is a precursor to the final abode of the wicked, which is indeed the lake of fire. Now we read in the Scriptures that there is coming a final day of judgment, in which all the dead, great and small, will be brought before his throne to stand before their holy Creator and give an account for the entirety of their life. So here's the reality. Those in hell today are are going to have a very brief 
moment of reprieve when they stand before the judgment seat. And that doesn't mean their agony has stopped. You read in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 14 through 15. Look at this in your notes. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the final abode. The lake of fire. You say, well, hell sounds so, so terrible. The lake of fire is worse. Because by through judgment day, God has given each one what they're worthy of according to the sins and commissions in their life. And there are some who are going to have it worse on Judgment Day than others. Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment than for His own generation. Why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah never saw God in flesh or had much revelation at all. But the generation that rejected Jesus, they are triply accountable for their sin and rejection of Him. The more light you have, the more accountability you have. Those who have sat in a church and heard the gospel over and over in their life and refuse to repent, hell will be hot for them. That's a sad reality. I don't say that with joy in my mind at all. That's a tragic reality. That ought to call you today, sinner, to repent and not take this flippantly. Turn to Christ. Turn to Him. See, hell should be greatly feared by the masses, but it is not. Why is that? Hell is not feared because God is not feared. If you don't fear God, why should you fear hell? You must fear God before you can fear hell. Because God's the one through judgment that sends you there. Because you're worthy of it. You see, man's depraved nature hates God. Hates His righteousness. He scoffs at God's judgment day. But I can assure you today that there will be no such thing as scoffing when they stand before their Lord. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 41. Then He will say to those on His left, talking about the day of judgment, Depart from Me, you curse into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we've looked at hell in a very brief way. This is not exhaustive. There's so much more Scripture we could bring out to it. But it's easy to see why people don't like this topic, right? It's easy to see why this teaching, oh, I'd rather just hear about God's love. Well, that's great, but you really can't know the full extent of God's love unless you know what His love has saved you from. You have to have the whole picture of God, not just the pieces that you like, or else you've got a different God than the Bible describes. It's easy to see why this teaching is hated. People wonder, why would God create such a place? Well, the answer is very simple. God is holy beyond measure, and His holiness does not allow sin in His presence. You're a sinner, you die in your sin, you can't be in His presence. That's the first aspect. But His holiness also demands righteous judgment on every sin. Every sin that every sinner ever commits, little or small in our eyes, it must be punished by Him. Why? Because he's a righteous judge. If he lets even one sin go unpunished, he forfeits his very character and nature, which is an impossibility for him to do. Jonathan Edwards rightly said this, the smallest sin 
is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. See, mankind fails to see the exceeding wickedness of their sin because they fail to see the exceeding holiness of God. God must punish evil or else He would not truly be holy and righteous. And God will punish evil. He says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not some, but all of it, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. That's what we see in our culture right now. You tell someone about sin, about repentance, about hell, and in their ungodliness they just suppress it. Oh, I don't need to hear that. Oh, I don't want to hear that. That's the tragic reality of man's depravity. But here's what I want you to understand, is that every individual in hell today is there because of their sinful nature and their sinful life. They lived before a holy God and their ultimate rejection of Christ Jesus as salvation. They are worthy of this judgment. And catch this, God is glorified in this judgment. A truth that many in modern Christendom does not want to recognize. That God is glorified in all of His attributes, His love, His mercy, His grace, as well as His justice and wrath. So we consider this today. Hell is such a gruesome reality and should be greatly feared, but is hell the only place for the dead? Praise God it's not. Christian, you, you, if you know you're saved, you reading this about hell ought to cause you to rejoice evermore in the salvation Christ has given you. Because every one of us are worthy of this that we're reading of. Every one of us. Which brings me to letter B. Notice the second place. People who die in Christ depart into heaven. People who die in Christ depart into heaven, friend. And so since we see that there is a hell, is there really a place called heaven? And the answer is yes. Since hell is so horrific, what might heaven be like? Who goes to heaven? This brings us to the importance of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Because there is no heaven for us without this. Without Christ and what He did, there is no heaven for us. We're only worthy of hell. Every person is worthy of hell. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that there is salvation from our sin and the punishment of our sin. You ever hear about someone who says, well, I just got saved. Really, what did you get saved from? I just thought it meant I was doing something. What did you get saved from? Some people who have been tricked into a profession can have no clue what the gospel is even about. What are you saved from? You're saved from your sin and God's wrath. That's what you need to be rescued from. That's the whole point of Christ and His crucifixion. And what we find through this is that salvation could only come to us through Jesus Because Jesus is the sinless one. The righteous God-man who lived the life that you could never live and I could never live, paid the penalty that you could never pay and I could never pay. And He conquered the enemy that we could never conquer, which is death itself. 
by His resurrection, friend. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, Christ also suffered for sins. Well, He's suffering for sin. Whose sin is it? Not His own. The righteous for who? The unrighteous. That's me, Christian. That's you if you're in Christ. Understand that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By Christ's death, what He has done is He has satisfied God's righteous justice, accomplishing a definite atonement for His sinful people. Not a potential atonement, but a definite atonement. He does not fail in that which He came to do. We sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. And I like to say, and He'll get all He paid for. And with that in mind, because of what He's done, He says to Mary and Martha in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It all boils down to you and your heart, between you and God. Do you believe on Christ? Do you truly and actually have faith in Christ alone? You see, Christ is the one who makes the difference in our eternal future. Because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross and resurrection from the grave, there is heaven for His people. And you are either going to die in your sins and thereby go to hell, which you are worthy of, or you will die in Christ because you have trusted in Him, you've been born again, regenerated by His grace, and thereby will be in heaven. Jesus gave these comforting words to His disciples in John 14, 1 and 2, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You understand there is a place in the Father's house for His people. Scripture makes this so unmistakably clear. Turn with me to one final passage in 2 Corinthians 5. I'll try to be quick. Verse 1. Paul gives insight, which this is God giving insight through him to you, to me. He says, For we know that if the tent, the tent being his earthly body, keep that in mind, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, meaning in death, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Do you see what Paul is telling us in this text? As he previously described his suffering and things that he was experiencing and how he looks at the unseen and not the seen, the eternal, not the temporal. He goes on to say that this tent, this earthly body, if it done away in death, that's not the end. There's a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens for him. See, we as God's people look forward to a heavenly dwelling after death, and the assurance that we have for this is in verse 5. The Holy Spirit who indwells us is the guarantee, the guarantee of your heavenly future. Notice verse 6 and 8 specifically. Notice that he says we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So he's talking about right now in this world. At home in the body, we're away from the Lord. The Lord's in heaven, right? What does he say in verse 8? We are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know what that means? Some translations render it this way. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. What's that mean, Christian? It means at the moment of death for you. You don't depart into the flames of hell. You depart into the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. Because your sin has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been saved by His grace. And just as those in hell are conscious of where they are and what they're experiencing, guess what, Christian? You're going to know where you are and you're going to be experiencing the presence of Christ when you get there. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, There cannot be heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven, and heaven is Christ. And friend, this is why, this is why that when a a Christian departs this world, it's not really the end of the world for us, is it? Or for them, there is a joy there. Even though it's sad, but because we lose a loved one, that there's something different about this kind of a funeral. The psalmist says in Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is what? The death of His saints. Because His saints are just going home to where they belong. And the place we know as heaven today anticipates the future resurrection leading us to that final eternal state. You see, history is coming to an end point in which all things will be made new, including our resurrection bodies which will unite with our spirit that's been in heaven when Jesus returns. And even Job, with what little revelation of he, that he had, remember, Job is the earliest book of the Bible. Job, with what little revelation that he had, he knew that there was a future resurrection. He knew the answer to his question, the dead, where is he? He knew where the dead were. He was asked that question by way of illustration. Job says in Job 19.26, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. How's that possible? The resurrection of God's people. And friend, because of that, we have hope that we look forward to. The Christian has an immovable hope. That brings me to number three, and lastly as we'll close. The preparation for death. This is really where the rubber meets the road. We see the problem of death. Universal to all of us. It's unavoidable. It's unparalleled. You're going to leave your body behind and you're going somewhere. We see the place from death. People either go to hell or heaven. You're on the road to one of those places. 
the preparation for death. And here's the preparation. It's just two questions for us. Number one, where are you going after death? Ask yourself, where am I going? Where am I going after death? You say, well, is it possible to actually know where you're going? Absolutely it is. That's the whole point of Scripture. It communicates that to us. God tells us plainly that you're already headed for hell and your sin and unbelief. But those who truly believe on Christ, they have eternal life. That's the distinction. Jesus said in John 3, 18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the difference. Condemned, not condemned. Believer, unbeliever. Born again, not born again. The question to all of us then is, do you believe wholeheartedly on Christ as the Savior for your own sins? Because this is about what Christ has done for sinners, not what you can do for Him. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't go to church enough to get to heaven. You can't give enough to the church to get to heaven. You can't outweigh your evil with your good deeds in your life. You cannot get to heaven on the tailcoat of your family's faith. This is about you as an individual. You and God. Because when it comes to judgment day, it's about your life before God. Not everybody else's. You. Do you believe? On Christ, Have you repented of your sins? You must be born again, meaning you must know Him in your heart by faith. This is the work of God's grace to you, not the work of yourself. And when you come to truly believe on Christ, you will be assured of where you will be when you die. Because Scripture and the Holy Spirit do that very thing. They give us assurance. 1 John 5.13, he says to those... Young Christians, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might know you have eternal life. You see, if you're looking for some kind of affirmation or other experience to get you to heaven, you're not going to have it. Do you remember what the rich man asked when he was in hell and he realized he wasn't getting out? He said, Oh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers so they'll see a risen person and then they'll believe. What did Father Abraham, or God, say to him? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Word of God. And if one rises from the dead, that's not going to make any difference if they don't believe the Word of God. And what you have before you here today is the Word of God that you're either going to believe or not believe. And lastly, letter B, preparation for death. How are you living before death? See, the reality of heaven and hell must cause us to consider what we're, how we're living our life. What are we living for as a Christian, from a Christian's perspective? What are we living for? Do we take seriously the time that we have in this world? Do we even think about the brevity of life? David said in Psalm 34, 39.4, O Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. It said, remind me how, how short and frail I am in life. Why? So we'll live as we ought to live. We talked about that on Wednesday night, didn't we? Ecclesiastes, going to a funeral is better than going to a festival, Solomon says. Why? Because funerals bring you back to the reality of life and death. In festivals, you're just ignoring it all, right? Funerals make us think about that. 
And if we're aware of this truth, let us consider how it is that we're living and what we're living for as Christians, what we're going to leave behind with the life that we lived. Let us look to things eternal and not things temporal. Let us live for Christ's glory and not our own selfish gain. So the question of the message, where are the dead? That was Job's question that he asked to illustrate the mortality of mankind. Man dies, is buried, and doesn't return. Where are the dead then? God reveals two places, heaven or hell. That's it. Every sinner is worthy of hell and is on their way there. That's how they start out. But only those who come to truly know Christ by faith alone have an eternal direction changed. Which one are you? Where are you headed? If you know today that you're not saved and you're headed for hell, don't delay. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and turn to Christ. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. And if you know that you're heading for heaven because you truly know Christ, you've been born again, consider the brevity of life and what really matters and live for His glory that will never fade away. Let us stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song. Our great God in heaven, we thank You, Father, for Your Word. How lost we would be without your revelation that you've given to us in the Scriptures. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you have given us what we need. You have not held back the hard truths that our natural self does not like. I'm thankful that you show us how condemned in sin we are. That there is a true place called hell that we are worthy of. But, oh, Father, thank you for revealing the good news of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That he has paid the penalty for sinners so that those who believe on him, those who possess faith in him, may know that they have eternal life and the free pardon of all of their sin. I pray that you would apply this message to the hearts of your people as you see fit today. In Jesus' name, amen.